football season about something called a gut week. Now, the idea of a gut week was to get all the guys that wanted to play basketball out in the field and to run them so hard until some of them fell down, to others lost their breakfast, and a bunch of them quit. The whole idea of gut week was to figure out who really wants to play the game. Now, that reminds me of how Jesus preaches. You know, there are these moments in the gospel where Jesus, he's walking down the road. You get this in Luke 14. There's a crowd that's following him. His popularity is beginning to soar. And all of a sudden, he stops. And you can see the whole crowd stop with him. And everybody inching up to see what the master is going to say. And then he turns around and says, if anyone would follow after me, he must hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, his own life also. He must take up a cross. He must forsake all. And you can just imagine the people beginning to shirk back, kind of turn and go the other direction. You know, Jesus' tactic as a preacher is so different from the way modern guys preach. Because today everybody tries to gather as much of a crowd as they possibly can, but Jesus seems often to be thinning the crowd. And that's what I want to do this evening. I want to identify and speak to those that really hunger to serve God. Now, we did this reading in Jeremiah. And I want to begin, and I want to ask this question. Why on earth would anybody want to serve the living God? And I think this is a legitimate question that we all need to wrestle with. Why would anybody want to serve God? And to get, to get you to think about this from a different perspective, I want to look at the life of Jeremiah, and I want to do so in two ways. I want to zoom out and see it as a whole, and then I want to zoom in and see what goes on in this passage. So let's first zoom out and see the difficulty of this man's life. Now first, think about the difficulty of his calling. If you have your Bible, just flip back to chapter 1. So Jeremiah, he's called as a young man. Look down at verse 9. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Verse 10. See, I have this day set you over the nations, over the kingdoms. If you're egotistical like me, that sounds great. Position of authority. But then God goes on and says, to root out and pull down. To destroy and throw down. To build and to plant. Okay, so it sounds two-thirds negative, one-third positive. This isn't so bad. And then you get down to verse 17. Therefore, prepare yourself and arise. And speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. Okay, now I'm a little bit less excited. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall, against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, against the people. They will fight against you, but they're not going to prevail. I've got your back, God says. Now raise your hand if that's a calling that you'd like to have. All the people, all the priests, all the rulers against you. Now that's just the calling. Then think about the message. God gives Jeremiah an explosive message. He is to tell Israel or Judah that their sin is so bad that they fornicated against God and that he's writing a a divorce certificate against them. 
God tells Jeremiah to tell the people that their sin is actually worse than that of their fathers. If anybody spent any time reading the Old Testament, you've probably figured out that they didn't do so well in the past. And they're even worse now. God tells them to tell them that even if Moses and Samuel showed up, the two great intercessors of the Old Testament, and pleaded on their behalf, it still wouldn't make any difference. That that emblem of culture, that emblem of God's presence, that temple is going to be ground down and broken, like a piece of broken pottery. Now then there's the difficulty of the reaction. How do people react to this message? Well, just like you would think. Jeremiah, you know, he's rejected. When he goes to his hometown, they plot his death. At one point, he and Baruch, his scribe, they make this beautiful scroll. It took a lot of time to make this scroll. You know, they give it to the people. It finally works its way up to the king. He takes out his pocket knife, cuts it up, throws it in the fire. Jeremiah's physically abused. There's a priest whose name is Pasher. He's kind of a governor in the temple. He hears Jeremiah's message. He takes him, he gives him a beating, and he throws him in the prison. And there's another time where this other guy, Hananiah, Jeremiah's walking through the streets of Jerusalem. He's got this yoke on his shoulders. The message is obvious. If you keep this path of sin, God's going to send you back into slavery where you came from. And then this Hananiah comes takes the yoke, smashes it, and tells everybody that actually things are going to get better in two years. Jeremiah is put into prison and then into a dungeon where he's in mud wondering if he's ever going to get out. Then when things finally get better because the people have been taken out of the land and there seems to be a degree of peace, he's kidnapped and taken to Egypt. Now in all of this, there's the difficulty as well of his mental and emotional anguish. He's so broken over the lack of response of the people that he says, if only my head were waters, that my eyes were a fountain, that I could just weep day and night because I can see the path of destruction that God's people are on. He actually said it would be better if I hadn't been born to see this. And guys, just to make things more difficult, God tells him he can't marry and he can't have kids. And anybody who's had a difficult job or you've been in ministry and felt the challenges, you know when everybody's against you, if you can go home and you can look into one set of eyes and she gets it or he gets it, or if you have the kids and they just distract you from all the stress from the day. And God says, you can't have a wife, you can't have children, but here's the reason. What's about to happen is so bad, you don't want to bring new life into this. His whole ministry, he seems to have two converts. There's the scribe, Baruch, and there's the guy that gets him out of prison, Ebed-Melech. He dies very possibly in exile away from his home. There's no indication that he comes back. So let's just measure Jeremiah's life. And let's use the standard of my country, which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How's his life? Rubbish. How's his liberty? Non-existent. How's his happiness? Hardly any. Now let's then zoom in. Zoom into this passage that we read in chapter 12. What we get here is this common complaint through the Old Testament where God's people ask, why do things look upside down? You know, he acknowledges, verse 1, God's righteous, but why then is it the unrighteous that seem to prosper? And they're ruining everything. Even the birds and the beasts in verse 4 are being consumed due to the sin of these people. Now, anybody who thinks God's a therapist, 
needs to pay attention to verse 5. You don't get counseling degrees for saying this kind of stuff. How does God respond? If you've run with a footman and they have wearied you, how then can you contend with horses? Jeremiah, if you think this is difficult, well, buckle up because it's about to get a lot harder. Now, when you look at Jeremiah's life, I think there's only three ways that you can really react. The first is you can pity him. You know, pity is not sympathy. Sympathy is when you enter into the suffering of somebody. Pity is when you keep your distance and you look over and you feel a disgust that you hide and think, wow, I'm glad I'm not him. Right? This is what we tend to do with homeless people. You know, we just kind of walk around and think, gee, I don't know what led to that, but I'm sure glad that's not my situation. And we might do that with Jeremiah. Gee, what a difficult life. The other way we might react is with anxiety. My dad, he grew up at the time when the United States was at war with Vietnam. And there was a draft that could call your number. And every guy was scared to death that he'd get the notice that says, drafted for war. And you can read this life and think, gee, I sure hope God doesn't call my number. You know, let me just stay in the back of the church, Lord. But then there's a third way that you can react to the life of Jeremiah. And I can't think of a better word than this. And it's envy. That you actually see something in the experience and in the life of Jeremiah that creates a deep hunger by which you think, I'd like to run with the horses. Now, let me give you four reasons to envy the life of Jeremiah. Here's the first one. The first one is that Jeremiah knew the majesty of God. One of the greatest fears among young people in the 21st century is the fear of missing out. Right? Young people, they live by their bucket list. Lord, don't take me before I go to Thailand. But there's actually only one thing in this universe that can't be missed. And that is the holiness of God. And what Jeremiah didn't have in terms of happiness, he made up in terms of understanding who God was. Look at chapter 9, verse 23. These are not words that Jeremiah simply wrote. These are words that Jeremiah breathed. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Who is this Lord? Go down to verse, chapter 10. Look at verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble. And the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. You look down at verse 12. He made the earth. He established the world. He's 
stretched out the heavens. This is a man who knew the majesty of God. And he didn't just know the holiness. He saw the grace. He looked forward to the one that God would provide. Jehovah Sikainu. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, do you know what happens if you apprehend the majesty of God to any degree? You can't but want to draw near, to participate in, in the smallest of ways to contribute to that which is of highest worth. I think my favorite story of this in the Old Testament is that wonderful story. David, he's in the cave of Adullam. The Philistines have a garrison over at Bethlehem, his hometown. There's a few of his mighty men with him, and he just kind of sighs. He's not even thinking anybody's listening. And he says, oh, for a cup of water from the well of Jerusalem. In a flash, his men are off. And somehow they get through the garrison. Somehow they get to the well. Somehow they pull out the water. They put it in a skin or something. Somehow they get back away from the Philistines. They get through the desert. They bring it to David. You can see the eagerness on their faces as they hand him the smallest of gestures that just shows how deeply they appreciate. And David does the most remarkable thing. He takes it and pours it out. Because he too had a king. And he knew that such devotion was not worthy of any just mere mortal. But that belonged to God. Friends, that's what Jeremiah knew. He knew the majesty of God. Here's a second reason to envy the life of Jeremiah. Jeremiah grew into a man of steel. Do you know the value of character? Friends, character, that is our real net worth. It's not how much we have in the bank. It's not the car we drive. It's not what kind of suit we wear. It's the fruit of the Spirit that Christ has wrought in our life. And friends, the test of character is never success. You want to know where you hear about someone's character? You hear it in a eulogy. And one of the things I did a lot in the Highlands is I buried a lot of people. And I've seen really wealthy men be buried, and I've sat with their family, and they've not been able to tell me anything of worth about the character. Yes, what he's done in business, but nothing about the man. I've also buried humble farmers, where I couldn't get people to stop talking about the character. And where when it came time to the funeral, the whole church was filled, the back room was filled, and people poured out into the, into the ground outside the building. Now, do you know how you develop character? There's only one way. You visit a blacksmith. You go to the forge. You've got to be willing to be on the anvil, to feel the hammer, to be under heat. Now, for some reason, people call Jeremiah the weeping prophet, and it's unfortunate because there's nothing weak about this man. God wrought deep character in him. You want to know courage? You think of this prophet who had to stand at the gates of the temple and tell priests about their sin. Who stood at the gates that the rulers used and told them that God was going to crush them like an earthen will vessel. You want to think of grit? persevering day in, day out, week upon month, month upon year, year upon decade, continuing in difficult work, or meekness. 
When Pasher strikes him on the face, there's no sign that he, that he turns and tries to hit him back. Letting God bring justice in his timing. Patience, part of the difficulty of Jeremiah's life, is the stuff he's talking about hasn't yet occurred in many cases. But trusting and waiting for God's timing. Hope. Seeing the mercy beyond the judgment. Submission. Guys, when I think of Jeremiah's life, I think of that wonderful poem by John Donne. Oh, think me worth thine anger. Punish me. Did you hear that? Oh, think me worth thine anger. Punish me. Burn off my rust and my deformity. Renew thy image so much by thy grace that thou mayest know me and I'll turn my face. Here was a man, yes, he didn't have life in terms of what we think of as a standard of living. But there was spiritual life in this man. Here's a third reason to envy the life of Jeremiah. He experienced the joy of a single convert. Some people say he didn't have any converts. I don't know where they get that. Baruch's obviously with him, and Ebed-Melech gets blessed by the Lord for his obedience. There were at least two men that heard his message. Now, did any of you see that film, Hacksaw Ridge? But Desmond Doss, this soldier in World War II, was a conscientious objector. He didn't believe in killing, but he entered into the army to save lives as a medic, but refused to carry a rifle. And when it came time, his division was deployed. They're out in the Pacific. Their job is to take this ridge. Nobody's been able to take it. Remember, they get up over the ridge. They push the Japanese back. It looks like everything is going great. Evening falls. And before the morning, they're blitzed. It's a suicidal attack. All of these American soldiers, they're running back toward the ridge. They're trying to get over. Desmond Doss is with them. But then he hears the cry of wounded comrades. And while Japanese soldiers are patrolling, looking for living enemies to kill, Desmond Doss is taking injured men, bringing them back, and lowering them to safety. And as he does it, do you remember what he keeps saying? One more. Just one more. And friends, that's the heart of a real prophet. It's the heart of a real Christian. One more. It's worth it for the one Here's a fourth reason to envy the life of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had the honor of sharing the field with God's suffering servants. Now, I know you all don't like baseball, but guess what? Neither do we. We just pretend to. One of the greatest second basemen in baseball history was a guy named Ryan Sandberg. When he was inducted to the Hall of Fame, he had to give a speech. This is what he said. I was in awe every time I walked onto the field. Stepping out on the grass, seeing the crowd, hearing the national anthem, thinking about the players that had gone before him, the players that would play after him, it humbled him. Now, friends, there's a hall of fame, but it's not for baseball or football players. It's for God's suffering servants. It's, for, it's where you see names like Abraham, who left his home, who was willing to place a son on the altar in order to follow his Lord. It's where you see names like Moses, who had to care for the most difficult congregation in the history of the church for 40 years in the wilderness, and when it came time to go into the promised land, he didn't get to see it. 
It's where you see the name Elijah. After the greatest demonstration of God's power in the whole of the Old Testament, thinking that this finally will turn the hearts of the people to the Lord. It's happening. He ends up back in a cave thinking, I'm no better than my father's. It's where you see Paul bruised and shipwrecked and beaten. But why is there glory in this hall of suffering servants? It's not because of those men. It's because they reflected something in their lives. And that was the suffering servant. You know what Paul said? You know, his great aim, it was all loss, that he might know Christ, that he might know the power of his resurrection, that he might know the fellowship of his suffering, that he might be conformed to his death. Friends, there's no greater glory than being able to bear something of the reproach that Christ felt. We're the whole realm of nature and mind. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so d- divine. Demands what? Half my life? A quarter? All my life. Myself. My all. Now my hope is that maybe there's one or two out here that your heart is stirred. A long time ago, C.T. Studd, the famous missionary, he's trying to describe Christians in his day and he used the image of a chocolate soldier. The reason he liked this image is because it was some sort of chocolate soldier with a nice foil wrapping, and he said, this is a perfect emblem of Christians. They look like soldiers on the outside, but you put them in heat and they melt. But I trust that's not true for all of you, that somebody's heart here burns with a spiritual desire to serve his, to serve her Lord. And if that's the case, let me just give you some thoughts. Here's the first thought. Guys, if your heart burns with spiritual ambition, train like you want to be used. I love the life of William Carey, the great missionary to India, one of the fathers of modern missions. I love it for this reason. When he was in his 20s, he had no idea that God might bring him overseas. And there he was a cobbler. He was making shoes. And I have no doubt that late at night when he was studying Greek, when he was learning Hebrew, that some of his neighbors were thinking, what are you doing? Focus on your job. That people thought it was odd when he was actually taking pieces of leather and constructing his own globe. But is any surprise that God used that man later on to translate the Bible into 30 different languages. Maybe some of you are older. You think you're past the time of training. Well, let me just remind you of Anna and Simeon who day in, day out, remember, were in the temple awaiting the kingdom of God, prayerfully asking the Lord to do a fresh work. I love, it's a wonderful book on the revival of the 18th century, the one with Wesley and Whitfield. The writer of this book As he introduces that wonderful era where God did so much, listen to what he says. I love this. Somewhere we may suppose, sometime before all of these remarkable events of revival began, there was one or a dozen or hundreds, but perhaps just one person praying. Guys, here's a second piece of advice. If your heart burns, with spiritual ambition, resolve to never say no to God. 
whether it's to suffering, whether it's to sacrifice, whether it's to submission. Do you know that wonderful hymn, we bear the torch that flaming passed from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired with the same ambition. We yield you all our powers. We go to all the world, is what the chorus says. Say yes to God. Here's a third thing I would say to you. Ask God for a shovel. One of the most famous American generals of World War II, a guy named Patton, General Patton, before his men were sent over to fight in France and go to the continent, he gave a series of speeches to inspire his men. One of his speeches, he said this. He said, men, 30 years from now, when you're sitting in front of the fire, and you got your grandson on your knee, and he looks up in your eyes and he says, granddaddy, what did you do in the great war? You won't have to cough, look down, shift them to your other knee, and say, well, son, I shoveled horse manure in Louisiana. You'll be able to say you fought with a great third division, that you fought with a great General George Patton. Now, that sounds inspiring, but Patton got it wrong. Because maybe it's true in the military, there's shame in carrying a shovel. But there's no shame in having a shovel in the Lord's work. I love what Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, what he used to tell his men. He used to say, never do anything that someone else can or will do when there is so much to be done that others cannot and will not do. Do you want to be used by God? You say, Lord, show me the stuff that nobody else wants to do. And guys, guess what no one wants to do right now? You know, I've come home to the United States. And when people ask where have I been, I say, oh, I've been in Scotland for nine years. And they say, oh, you know, that must be lovely. And I say, well, yeah, maybe if your goal is to visit castles, right? And if you love history. But if you love the gospel, it's a hard place to be. Because you labor and you labor and you labor. And maybe you have good health care, but you know what? You long to be in that place of Af- in Africa where you see throngs of people coming to the gospel. God's placed you in a hard place spiritually. Are you willing to have a shovel in your hand? And if you are, I'd leave you with this. Just get started by cleaning up your back garden. Whenever we think of God's call on our life, we think of the stuff far away. You know, the truth is, there is so much right around us in our life. How you treat your spouse. How you love your children. Your ethic in the workplace. How you invest your time. Where you invest your intention, which is different. Your use of money. Your place in the neighborhood. Your place within the local church. You get started right there. One of the great guys that helped inspire Wesley and Whitfield and all that generation, he wrote a book, and this is what he said. We must not look upon ourselves in a state of common and pardonable imperfection, but in such a state that lacks the first and most fundamental principle of Christianity, an intention to please God in all our action. Do you have that intention, that desire to please God in everything?
If you do, I would just encourage you with that wonderful hymn that Isaac Watts wrote. I think it captures something of a mentality that we need to recover today. Am I a soldier of the cross? A follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or bless to speak his name? Must I be carried to the sky on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed the bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. I think Jeremiah had a life to envy. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't easy. But as Paul would say, it bared, it held up the weight of glory. And those of us that hunger for Christ. Let's pray for hearts that are willing to stand in the gap in a difficult and in a dark time. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice for the privilege of being able to follow your footsteps. Uh, The only motive we have to take up a cross is that we've seen one that has changed our world, that has revealed a love and a life such that we can give up everything else. If we have that love, if we have that life, we have everything. But we just pray that the truths of the gospel that we know, the promise of resurrection, the faithfulness of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the love of a father, the intercession of the high priest, that these things would drop from our head into our heart and that we would be willing to take that place wherever you've assigned us and serve And God, by your grace, even contribute to your mission. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Amen.